Welcome to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we bring in entrepreneurs who have created online businesses and improved their lifestyles. Here's your host, Rohit Malhotra. Hi everyone, this is Rohit from Life Self Mastery. I'm excited to have uh, Ansaf Karim, who's a partner at Lightspeed Ventures. Uh, Lightspeed Venture Partners is a global venture capital firm focused on investing in both enterprise and consumer sectors. Lightspeed manages over $10 billion of capital under management with offices in Bay Area, China, India, Israel, Europe, and Southeast Asia. Uh, Ansaf has done his MBA from Harvard and bachelor's from Stanford. A big thank you to uh, Anna, who's also Ansaf's wife, for the introduction. Uh, welcome to the show, Ansaf. Thank you so much. Appreciate having me. Awesome. So uh, you know you do have a uh, you know non-linear part to uh, to venture capital, but how did you get into into the world of startups? And how was your uh, you know initial journey of growing up and and, and getting into uh, into into grad school and then later on MBA? Yeah, you know, I'd say um, now looking back, I think you know I can trace a lot of my. Um, you know, career interest back to, to growing up. I grew up in Oregon to, uh, to, uh, most of my parents were immigrants from Pakistan. My dad was an engineer, uh, and spent time in the tech industry. And my, my mom was a, um, uh, social entrepreneur and started a nonprofit focused on helping refugees settle in the U S um, and with their social needs. And I think both of those strands kind of played a part in, in the role that I wanted to have uh, in my own career, both from an interest early on in technology and the impact technology can have, but then also having a thought or a view around how do you live a life that you know has an impact towards others. And so I think both of those strands kind of fed me. Even when I was in college, I went to I was fortunate to go to Stanford for undergrad. And when I was there, I thought I was going to probably go into some kind of government role when I graduated, maybe work for the State Department or do something like that, because at that time I thought that was the way you could have an impact at scale, but uh, when I got to campus, uh, I realized that there was this thing, which I didn't even know how to name called entrepreneurship at the time, but basically small groups of people working together on fun projects. Uh, actually, Lightspeed at the time had a summer fellowship program, which basically allowed you to apply as a student with an idea, and they'd give you some small amount of funding and basically be able to work out of their offices. So I got exposure actually initially to the idea of entrepreneurship, or this idea that you could get money to work on exciting projects with your friends. And that's how I first got uh, hooked onto this idea of, of tech and startups. Um, I had an opportunity to also work with a small uh, seed stage firm back then uh, that was focusing on writing really small checks, mostly focused on um, areas of also impact. And it got exposed me for the first time also to the venture landscape and what the opportunity could look like there to be on the other side uh, of the table of partnering with entrepreneurs to help them scale. So I was lucky that through my college experience, I got some exposure to what this world looked like. And, um, you know, my path from there though, kind of took a, a little bit of a, a random path in some ways into how I got into venture. I spent time at originally at McKinsey because I wanted to go and actually get a, a sort of for business education. And so I spent about two and a half years working at McKinsey. I spent a lot of time working with, I was in the New York office. So by nature, I spent a lot of time working with the top financial institutions in the US, mostly on their consumer businesses. So um, you know, credit cards, wealth management, mortgages, retail branches. And this was sort of right around the time after the crisis. And so it was a very interesting time within those banks in terms of how they thought about strategy. Um, and also informed a lot of my investments later on in the fintech realm in terms of where banks were underserving or not able to meet the needs of so many consumers in the US and abroad. Um, I then spent some time, you know, mostly following my passion um, where I found uh, a politician named Cory Booker, who was back then mayor of Newark and then eventually ran for Senate from New Jersey. And I got a chance to work with him as a 
on the policy side. Uh, so it was a great, interesting experience to just see, you know, in some ways how some of the sausage was made and how uh, the regulatory part and the political and policymaking part of the world uh, sometimes intersects with the tech world and oftentimes doesn't at all, but it's an interesting, uh, in, you know, part of the equation as you think about any business venture. Um, and then uh, I got to spend some time both in grad school as well as in the startup called Relate IQ, which was a, in the enterprise CRM space, uh, which we ultimately sold to uh, Salesforce back in 2014 for about $400 million. Um, and then, you know, when I was in grad school, I was thinking through what I wanted to do next. And I had a lot of ideas and passions around, you know, potentially starting a company or potentially, you know, uh, being on the investing side. And I think when I got a chance to meet the partners at Lightspeed, I think it became evident and clear that, you know, the investing side could bring a lot of uh, fulfillment, both personally in terms of the support you get to offer entrepreneurs at the earliest stages of their journey, um, but also a place that, you know, I felt like had, um, had a desire to really have a big and outsized impact in the venture landscape. Um, and so that was, uh, almost five years ago now. Um, and I've been lucky to continue to be doing what I'm doing. Well, I think, I think it is super interesting because you've been with some really, uh, really great uh, Ivy League brand names, uh, you know, especially, uh, you know, wanted to understand how was the experience uh, uh, in, in public policy and, and at McKinsey, did it really help you uh, have that personal experience to be a good investor? Or do you think, uh, you know, a lot of MBA students, uh, uh, would, do you think it helps to have a have an operating experience before they become investors? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think um, you know, as an investor, all your past experiences kind of inform your thoughts and your views about businesses and opportunities. And I think the more expansive it can be, oftentimes actually it opens up your eyes to where there might be opportunities where other people might not be looking. Um, in particular, I think, you know, the McKinsey skill set early on in the career was helpful just to be able to build the building blocks of, you know, how you think about analysis and, and um, understanding and unpacking businesses, but also on the client side, which, you know, ultimately VC in many ways is a partnership opportunity with entrepreneurs and being able to understand how do you empathize and communicate with someone who, you know, you're not directly um, in the trenches with day in and day out, but are trying to help and shepherd into a, a larger opportunity. Uh, you know, in some ways, some of that consulting experience was helpful and additive. Um, but I'd say the sort of broader, just breadth of experience has been helpful in terms of understanding many of the nuances that may exist in so many different sectors, you know, even on the policy side, when I think about some of the fintech investments, like I mentioned, obviously working with banks was helpful, but also on the regulatory side, really understanding, you know, how do policymakers potentially think about, you know, whether or not uh, they will continue with regulation that helps or doesn't help fintechs. You know, how would they think about something like the Durban Act in the U.S., which is, you know, sort of the basis upon which many fintech models are based upon. Is that going to continue or not continue? Um, so having a little bit of an exposure to that world as I help, you know, as I focus on some of these regulated areas has actually been pretty additive and helpful as well. So, um, you know, none of this was planned, obviously, but I think looking back, I can tell that um, those experiences can be can be certainly helpful. I think on the business school side, um, you know, I think the biggest advantage of business school, as many people cite, is, is just sort of the network and the people you meet. And there's so much exposure through osmosis to people who are have very different interests and, and likes and come from all over the world that you you can meet oftentimes in in these graduate school programs. Um, I think that's probably the most uh, uh, great experience, especially as, as for my job now, as technology gets more and more internationalized, um, the ability to have 
friends, networks, contacts, and places that all over the world who are in tech or not in tech, but have some local contacts. I think that's been very helpful in more, more recent months as we've also looked you know, abroad for some of our own investment uh, areas and ideas. No, I, I think that's that's super interesting and helpful. And uh, yeah, uh, you know, you've been uh, working in in at light speed. You know, want to understand for, for a VC. You know, how does the decision making process happen uh, as a partner? How do how do you focus on uh, making investments? And uh, you know, what is the entire decision making process there? Yeah, um, you know, I think sometimes it can be kind of opaque from the outside in in terms of how some of these firms operate. And so, I'd love to try to shed some light into it. I think you know. Um, at our firm, we're although we're a big firm, we're also a reasonably lean firm. And I think the way that we like to operate is that each individual um, partner likes to build conviction around areas that they're excited about, um, but very quickly loops in you know, other folks who have expertise in that area or adjacent interests in that area. And so whether it's a seed deal of $2 million or a pre-IPO deal, we form what's called deal teams around uh, these opportunity sets. And obviously one partner will be leading the charge in many ways, but there will be a group of one, two, sometimes three partners um, who will have exposure to the company, be part of the diligence process and help get to a um, initial perspective around the company. And eventually for almost all deals, you know, they go through a formal investment committee process where the company will come and present to the partnership, to the broader partnership. Um, and sort of the case will be made by the deal team with a memo and other details to support it around why this investment is a good investment or what are the, some of the risks associated with it. And outside of that meeting, out of that meeting, usually comes an answer around, you know, should we move forward with this investment or not? Um, but, you know, the beauty of, I think, of, the, of that approach is that um, it allows for individual conviction, but it also helps build, you know, consensus in a way that feels very natural to both the entrepreneur, but also internally in terms of, you know, our ability to move fast and execute um, some of these um, deals as they come through the door. All right. And, uh, you know, uh, how would uh, VC firms look at uh, reserve allocation? Uh, uh, this is in context of you investing at the seed stage. Uh, how do you look at reserve allocation and how do you decide, you know, which companies to, to double down and in which companies should you uh, get on to reserve uh, constrained capital? Yeah, I'd say generally, you know, from our context, at least at the firm, you know, we're very much focused on high concentration, high conviction bets, right? And so when we think about the investments we want to make, um, we're really thinking about it through that lens of, you know, we're going getting onto a journey, especially at the early stage with the founder for the next, you know, 10 plus years. And some of our best companies that have, you know, um, reached IPO or, or large exits have been 10 plus year journeys, you know, and whether that's a MuleSoft, AppDynamics or a firm, these companies have, uh, all startups take a while to get to that type of scale and that type of outcome. And so, I think the, the mindset at the firm is very much focused around how do we not only find and partner with those, with those entrepreneurs and those businesses, but also understand that as capital partners to those entrepreneurs, we need to have a structure that can support them over the life cycle of the company and through both ups and downs. And so that's how we've always thought about reserve allocation as well, that for you know, our companies, we make sure that we've got the right amount of reserves so that we can continue to support that company for their next round for sure. And oftentimes even beyond that. And the way that our funds are structured, we have a um, early stage fund, a growth stage fund and an opportunity fund. And in many ways, our companies sometimes graduate through those different funds as well. You might have a early stage investment to a company as the company scales and we decide to put more money into the company 
and support that company, they might come out of a different fund and so on. And so um, our whole strategy and fund strategy is also oriented around supporting part, uh, our partners in that way. Um, I think, you know, more broadly, as, as, as I've met with a lot of other seed firms and other firms who think about research, uh, reserve allocation differently, I think there's no one right answer for any firm. Um, you know, some firms that are on the seed stage, that might be their first firm or it might be smaller. They might do less reserve allocation just because they've got more companies. And if you end up reserving for every company, that can be a tough, uh, tough equation for a smaller fund. Um, you know, also other larger funds have a different strategy around how they want to think about support for companies over the long term. So I would definitely say there's no one size fits all, but for us, you know, because we are, you know, high conviction and, and concentrated investors, we try to make sure we've got the right reserves over the life cycle of a company. All right. And, uh, you know, how, how does, uh, uh, I understand, you know, they're not a lot of, uh, you have a very lean team, but uh, how do you look at sourcing deals? To, does a partner also look at uh, sourcing deals, or do you leave it to you know associates and principals uh, for for sourcing our deals? Yeah, I'd say um, you know a lot. Most most folks are also you know sourcing deals and looking at uh, net new deals. A lot of it, as as you know, comes through um, both referrals from folks that you've worked with in the past, other seed investors, other folks who you've collaborated with, other folks in the venture ecosystem, startup ecosystem. Um, but also, there's no substitute for you know, reaching out directly to companies and um, making sure that you can spend time to do that kind of um, direct outbound and, and contact with with entrepreneurs. And so I think it's a healthy balance of, you know, both the referral system, but also the outbound. And then within the firm, you know, we've got a very healthy culture around, you know, clearly if it's an area that I spent a lot of time in or my partner spent a lot of time in, you know, passing along deals to each other as well, because what we want for the entrepreneur is to have the best partner from the life speeds team to be able to partner with you on your journey. And so, you know, if it's a, you know, deep enterprise infrastructure company that I may not have great context or background in, you know, I'll pass it to one of my partners who might be able to better both assess the company, but also honestly be a better partner for that entrepreneur and vice versa. If there's something in the FinTech realm or somewhere that I spend a lot more time, you know, my partners will send me deals and say, Hey, this, you know, is this something you'd like to engage with and meet with? And so um, there's many opportunities that come through, come through that as well. Um, but, you know, fundamentally, you know, sourcing, especially at the early stage, and especially in this environment, is such an important part of the business. And, uh, you know, any any firm that wants to, and any partner in, or investor that wants to continue to scale and, and do well in this business, you know, sourcing is a key thing to focus on and continue to, to build muscle into. Mailman is a email assistant that shields you from unimportant emails, minimizing interruptions and making your days calmer and more productive. You can visit mailmanhq.com and use the code LSM, uh, which gives you the benefit of 15% off for the first year on the annual plan, uh, which already has 20% discounted compared to the monthly plan. So you can visit mailmanhq.com and use the code LSM. And, uh, you know, for, for, uh, for VCs who, who, uh, partying VC just getting in, in, into this uh, world of uh, venture ecosystem. What is the best way to to build uh, their reputation? Most effective way to build their reputation and, and you know get the best of leads. Yeah, it's a good it's a good question. Um, and similarly, you know, I got this advice when I first joined uh, the venture world, which was, you know, there's no one way to do venture, and you should try to match your personality to the way that you approach venture, right? And so there's some folks who are 
you know, naturally great, for instance, at, you know, building brands online. There's some folks who are naturally great, maybe because of their past experiences about being that sort of operating partner for, for an entrepreneur. There's some folks who are, you know, extremely intellectual about the way they approach investing, but can help provide a very different type of value for entrepreneurs and the way that they engage their audiences more broadly. So I would say that I, I don't think there's one size fits all for anybody. If someone's entering for the first time, what I would really say is, it does seem like a must these days that you have to have a way for entrepreneurs to get to know you before they even know you. So what does that usually mean? Oftentimes that can mean an online presence, whether that's Twitter or Medium or other platforms to be able to say, hey, I want to look you up before I meet you. What does the internet tell me about you know myself on uh, and, and this potential investor of mine? And so I think that's an important uh, thing for any investor to think about. Um, the second thing, which you know is more and more uh, important, but hard to start a jump start at the beginning of your career. But very quickly, you'll you know many folks will be able to build on this is sort of your reputation both with other investors, but also with entrepreneurs. And so the ability of you know uh, an entrepreneur to talk to their own entrepreneur friends or maybe their seed investors if they're looking at a Series A investor and say, hey, do you know this person or have you worked with this person? That reputation you know plays uh, pays out a lot of dividends. And so making sure that you know as you think about this as in a VC in this game or this in this market, you know, how do you make sure to understand this is a long-term game and so that, and a repeat game. And so the way that you interact with folks, the way you engage with folks, the way you even pass on investments, all of that adds up over time and it builds sort of a body of work that is your uh, sort of reputation, the way people know you in this ecosystem. And so I think that's an important thing for uh, new folks to focus on um, and not get too carried away with, you know, just focusing on sourcing or moving fast or execution, because ultimately this is a people business. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think you rightly pointed out. It's, it's a people's uh, business. And I want to talk about, you know, uh, in the context of founders, you know, what, what do you think are the biggest mistakes founders make uh, when they hit traction and they begin to scale? Uh, what's been some of the, you know, uh, usual mistakes which founders make? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I think, um, there can be a lot of hiccups uh, for any company. Um, you know, I think getting to product market fit by itself is is a huge achievement. I mean, I, I think people sometimes underestimate the path from going to just zero to one to, to product market fit. So um, I think once you hit that, you know, um, as companies scale to the next stage, one of the things that comes to mind is um, the idea around how do you continue to expand product in a way that doesn't make you feel um, that, that feels comfortable, but also maybe a little bit uncomfortable. What I mean by that is that oftentimes when people get to that stage and they start to see something working, uh, oftentimes they just want to double down into that. And, and that could be the right answer in many ways, but with because of the pace of innovation, because of the pace of competition, and because of the pace that it takes to build a successful, fast-growing company, you have to constantly be thinking about your act two and your next product set. And so um, for many founders, sometimes getting out of that sort of mode of getting to product market fit and then now thinking, hey, something is working, you know, continuing to expand your thinking beyond that, I think is one important thing. Um, the second thing I would say is that, uh, you know, because like I said, product market fit is oftentimes a hard piece, a hard thing to get to, um, really understanding the team building that will it will take to get you to that next phase. Because usually zero to one means it's you and maybe a small group of your teammates who are really making this happen. But once you hit that product market fit, piece and you want to start thinking about scale, the natural thing uh, is to say, hey, well, this worked for me up to this point. Now I should continue this and keep the team maybe lean and small. 
And again, I'm not saying to go over hire or overspend, but really start to think about what are the key strategic hires that will take me to this next level. Oftentimes that can be a VP of product or a VP of sales or a COO, somebody in that caliber who can help not only take stuff off of your plate, but really think through some of these next level challenges that will certainly emerge as you think about scale. And so oftentimes I see founders uh, struggle to start saying, hey, is this really the right time that I should be bringing on somebody of that level? And obviously that's a contextual conversation you should have you know, uh, with your team and with your investors. But uh, more often than not, I often feel like people over hesitate to make that hire despite things are working and, and the product market fit is there. And now you need to figure out how do you scale to get to that next level. So those are probably two of the most common or frequent things that I encounter. Interesting. And you know, how, how, do you, how do you test a founder's ability to execute uh, on an idea when you meet him early on? Uh, are there any cues you look at to understand that the founder could be able to execute with? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I think, um, you know, especially at the seed stage, what we're really looking for, obviously, is a large market opportunity, but also a founder or a founding team that has, you know, founder market fit for that specific idea and for that concept. And so what does that actually mean? I think, you know, there's there's some signals and some cues that you can pay attention to. You know, one is obviously a founder's background. If you're building into a space and you previously came from a similar or adjacent space, oftentimes it becomes abundantly clear when you have the conversation with a founder. But even regardless, I think you can lean on some of that background to be able to say, hey, well, at least they've seen what maybe good looks like or what scale looks like at a company that is in a similar space. And now they're bringing some of those expertise to a different problem within that space. And I think that can be a very strong telling sign um, or at least a helpful signal or input into that equation. Um, I think a lot comes from the actual conversation you have with founders. I mean, because we do this day in and day out, you can tell when you speak with a founder, you know, how much thought and detail have they gone through and really thinking through a model, especially at that sort of seed and pre-seed stage where, you know, obviously you've got a vision, you've got an idea, maybe you've got a pain point and you've, you've thought about, you know, some of the parameters that go into that. But I've seen very quickly some founders have taken it a level deeper by really thinking through the details. Some have built more of an operating model, for example, knowing that most of those assumptions will be wrong, but at least having put the thought and the effort into saying, hey, here's what I think this could start looking like at scale. Um, and so through that conversation, you actually can see that how much effort and thought a founder has put into it and how much sort of you know, intellectual scrutiny they have gone through in terms of thinking through that model. Um, and it's and it becomes oftentimes pretty clear who's done that work and who who hasn't done that work. Um, and then, you know, lastly, especially at that seed stage, a lot of this is sort of whiteboarding with the founder and really saying, okay, well, this is your vision. Like, what could this be? How do we work together as a team potentially to make to think this through? And through those conversations, you know, a lot of this is ultimately comes down to a personal conviction on the individual and your ability to work with that individual as they think about this long-term vision. Um, and But through those sort of interactions, you can pretty clearly get that conviction and say, hey, even if there's some big question marks here, I like the way that this person is open to feedback and open to collaborate and open to taking input and open to, you know, helping me also get, you know, get conviction on this. And that oftentimes gives you signal on their ability to do that with others, whether that's future execs, future investors, future partners. Um, and so I think those are some of the things that we look for from a signal perspective when it comes to this amorphous idea of founder market fit. Got it. And, uh, you know, how, how to, uh, how, what advice would you give to founders who are looking to, to raise funds and how do they get to decide which VC firm a partner should come on, on their board? Yeah, it's a good question. And I think, um, I think there are, 
multiple things founders should do when they are assessing a potential board member. I think, and I'll, it's, I'll talk more about the early stage uh, versus the growth stage. That's where I spend more of my time. I'd say, um, you know, one thing every founder should do is, is talk to founders that have worked with that investor before. You know, oftentimes, especially in this environment where deals are moving so quickly and, and decisions are making are being made, you know, pretty fast. Uh, you know, I'd highly recommend that founders make sure they speak with folks who have worked with that investor. And ideally in situations where not, it hasn't always been up into the right. And so, so you can also understand, you know, what, how did the founder, how did the investor react when things weren't going as well as planned? And I think that will be very telling, especially for early stage founders in terms of this investor being part of their journey over a long period of time. Um, so I think that's very, very important. I think also really understanding, you know, oftentimes I've seen founders think about a firm versus a partner. And I think both are important. I do think actually firms as institutions can offer a lot of value to founders, both because many larger firms, including ours, have teams that help our portfolio companies as they think about scale. And I think that's intangible value that that will be super helpful for many folks, especially at the early stage. But also really thinking about that partner in, in particular. What is their background experience in this space? And how do I, as a founder, feel when I work with that or talk through that founder with that investor about my idea? Is it something that I can see myself sitting in rooms, sitting in board meetings, sitting in whiteboarding sessions with that individual and say, hey, I'm getting value out of this conversation or this engagement. And there's insight here that will be helpful for me. And you know, I've done things like, you know, fake board meetings, I've done whiteboarding sessions, you know, I've done, you know, dinners and things like that to get to know people at a personal level. All of that, I think, is important. And it goes both ways, obviously, but specifically for the founder, I think to get that level of comfort is extremely important, especially in a time of Zoom where you don't always get to meet your investors um, in person or as easily in person. So I think that's certainly extremely important. Um, and then I would really think about you know, the firm's um, strategy. And that's why I mentioned a little bit earlier with regards to how we think about concentrated uh, investments and what does that mean from you know, the potential investors board commitments. Is this their 17th board they're going to be joining with you or is this their seventh board? And that makes a big difference in terms of their ability to be engaged and be helpful to you. What is it? How many investments a year does this investor make? Is this one of 20 investments this year or is this one of three investments or two investments this year? And I think that makes a very big difference in terms of their sort of implicit level of commitment to you and your business over, over the long run. And then, you know, lastly, I'd say is, capital matters. And so is this fund able to scale with you as you scale your business? Um, that, you know, this environment where obviously there's a lot of money out there, you know, there's many different options, but I think it's as many founders that I work with and our firm works with, as you get to build that relationship, it's actually pretty nice to be able to go back to the same investor and firm and say, Hey, would you be interested in leading our next round? Would you be partners with us over this longer next step of this journey versus just this sort of singular moment of 12 to 18 months of this specific milestone and round. Um, and I think for many founders that really resonates. So these are some of the things that I oftentimes, you know, counsel my own found founders that I work with, but also prospective founders to think through as they make these very important decisions. And um, again, in this environment where things move fast, I think it's of utmost uh, importance for founders to really just take that moment, even if it's a full day or two or three to really go through that. And these days I've seen some firms put some pressure on timing or deadlines and, I just remind founders that the ball is truly in their court and they can push back on investors on timing and things so that they really feel comfortable around making this very important decision for them and their business. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, uh, as you rightly mentioned, it, the ball is in their court and they they need to make the right decision. And, uh, you know, uh, following up on that, you know, what metrics do you think uh, an enterprise or software or a, or a fintech founder should focus on in order to increase the, the value of the company? Yeah, it's a good question. Look, I think obviously there's many at the pre-seed and seed stage, you know, uh, a lot of it is still a bet on the market of the founder. And so metrics, obviously, the more metrics you have, the easier it is to help paint that story. But fundamentally, most investors are making a bet on on the team and on the market opportunity at that stage. I'd say as you get sort of series A and forward, what really matters, you know, is, is really demonstrating momentum. I think, you know, historically, you know, the ecosystem has provided these benchmarks of a million dollars in ARR or certain amount of month to month growth rates. Um, you know, what I oftentimes orient around more is, is around momentum in the business early stage, right? So can you demonstrate that, you know, certain things are happening in your business, whether it's a fintech business or a SaaS business, honestly, it's sort of different metrics, but similar concepts around, you know, how fast and how rapid is your ability to scale month with month or quarter over quarter, which demonstrates that there's a strong pull for your, for your product. It can still be small numbers or small dollars, but this idea that every month or every quarter, that increase or that jump is actually moving quite, quite fast. And it matters because we're in this business of, of fast growth and exponential growth. And so if, if you can start to see some breadcrumbs around that pace, that actually gives me more indication of what's to come versus hitting some arbitrary number of, for instance, a million ARR, which might've taken you 18 months to get to, tells me something very different versus you got to 500K in three months, might tell me a very different story. Similarly, I look up, you know, having spent time in product previously, I spend a lot of time really thinking and understanding product and product metrics. So especially for a lot of businesses that are on the consumer side, but also enterprise businesses, especially in the SaaS side, these days, you have to be able to prove that users, your users, users, your customers are engaged in your product consistently and frequently, and are you able to retain them over time? Um, and so not just thinking about this from a logo or dollar churn perspective, but truly a you know weekly active users, daily active users perspective with your product. And I think you know obvious, that obviously makes sense on the direct-to-consumer side, but even on the enterprise side these days, the best products are products where people live and breathe that product day in and day out for your core customer. And so paying attention to that, those usage patterns and how they're changing and growing um, is another important thing that that I pay a lot of attention to and we pay a lot of attention to um, as well. So I would really encourage founders generally to be oriented more around success metrics versus sort of these uh, vanity metrics or these benchmarks that have been thrown out there previously around, you have to hit a million ARR, you have to hit 100,000 users or whatever it might be to be able to raise your Series A. I think what people are really oriented around is how fast is your product growing? What kind of momentum do you have in the business and how how much do your customers love your product and how active are they in your product? Because those are things that are the foundation for longer term success versus just a generic metric. Today, I have an interesting stat for you. Did you note that the founder of Beautiful Lives Increase the social media presence by 10x. They managed to publish consistently and effortlessly using a robust social media management tool called Social Pilot. Social Pilot is a cost-effective social media tool that helps businesses scale their social media marketing efforts. Use lifestylemastery.com slash socialpilot to get a 14-day free trial. Awesome. Right. And uh uh, you know, I wanted to understand about fintech and, and crypto uh, industry. It's 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 really going fast. Do you think there's there's going to be more unbundling the fintech space? And where do you see you know 
the cryptocurrency uh, space, especially with China, you know, banning the crypto mining and uh, and the lot of regulatory policies uh, across uh, countries like India and China. Uh, where do you see you know crypto uh, uh, crypto market going from here? Yeah, that's a big question. I'd say um, you know first on the fintech side, you know I think what we're seeing. I think we're seeing two interesting things on the fintech side, uh, or a few interesting things I could say. One, I'd say that um, you know in the U.S., what we've seen is sort of what feels like a first wave of companies that are you know many of them are neobanks um, that have captured a more broad-based generalist you know audience base. If you think Chime, super impressive company, you know serving sort of the hundred million Americans living paycheck to paycheck or living, you know, sort of at the, uh, who are underserved by traditional financial institutions, but it's a very broad based audience. And it's also allowed them to accrue a lot of value over time as well. I think what we'll see sort of in B2 of the FinTech, at least on the consumer side, is much more verticalized and segmented approaches for some of these new businesses. So how do I find as a founder or as a potential FinTech, an area that feels like there's a big market opportunity, but is not going to be as broad as a company like Chime or a company like Square Cash, et cetera. It would be more focused on uh, maybe a demographic, maybe on the B2B side, it'd be focused on a vertical like construction or another area that has a lot of potential and customer market value, but is very hyper-focused on serving the needs of that demographic or of that archetype of consumer. And so I think we're already starting to see that and we'll see more of that um, happen over the coming years. And then I think the other thing that's interesting on the international side is that there's a lot of innovation happening in all over the world. Um, we spend a lot of time in LATAM, we spend time meeting some companies even in Africa and across the board. Um, and I, you know, some of the models have you know reflections of what's happened in the U.S. and the EU broadly, but they're very contextualized for the needs and the regulations of those specific countries. And for many of those regions and countries, I think we'll see a lot of great uh, large fintech companies emerge, both on the direct-to-consumer as well as the B2B side, who are solving for a lot of the needs that are you know, similar but different in terms of what that specific context may need. Um, and because of this obviously massive internet and, and smartphone adoption, we're at a point in many of these places where I think you're starting to see the early signs of what that will look like even in the coming years. And so I'm very bullish on what's happening uh, internationally as well. Um, and the last thing I'd say just more in the sort of U.S. context is sort of the infrastructure layer. How do you continuously make it easy for fintechs to launch? Like if you wanted to launch a neobank 10 years ago, the amount of hurdles and burden that would take is, is so high. Today, it's still hard, but it's much easier and there are more playbooks and there's more tools out there that have helped that use case, for example, thrive and, and continue to succeed. And I think that will happen across the board with all sort of fintech use cases, direct to consumer B2B, where you'll see many companies coming in to help enable those use cases, help make money move faster, help make it easier to develop on top of the existing financial services rails. We're an investor in a company called Sinterra, which is helping um, you know, new fintechs basically launch on top of partner banks as an example of that. And I think we'll just see many more iterations of companies who are trying to make it easier for for developers to, to basically build fintech products. And so that's a way that we're, we're generally very bullish on as well. And we'll continue to see, um, you know, you asked about crypto. I think crypto is a big, big topic, but uh, it, it does seem clear that on the regulatory side, you know, obviously China has, has spoken pretty loudly. It, it does seem from every signal that 
you know, is publicly available uh, given by the SEC that there will be, they are looking at, you know, all areas within crypto. I think, I think DeFi will probably be one area where they'll spend even more time just given the nature of the way that that product set works. Um, but I think generally I'm still very bullish on, you know, crypto and blockchain technology in general and the way that it's going to be innovating, not only how we interact with money and money movement, but also in terms of the next level applications that they're going to unlock. We've seen a, a little bit of that already come through with the way, you know, NFTs have created a new ma- mechanism for people to engage with, you know, uh, products that they like, artists that they like, potential other creators that they like. And I think we'll see more sort of second order applications built off of the attributes of blockchain and crypto that will unlock new ways of engaging with the internet. I think on the sort of fintech or money side, I think other interesting areas that I'm spending time on are where the actual consumer still feels like they're interacting with a normal fintech application or banking application. But on the back end, the way that the crypto attributes and the blockchain attributes are actually making the money movement in the back end much faster and seamless. So even me as an end consumer may not know that that's what's happening in the back end because I'm getting you know, my money fast, whatever it might be. The back end is actually being powered by crypto or blockchain companies and infrastructure that helps make that happen. So I think we're just at the very early innings of a lot of this. But if I think about taking a long-term view, I'm quite bullish on where all of this could head. And I think generally regulation you know, will be important, but it'll also give some clarity to entrepreneurs in terms of like what is what is what is clearly in the green versus what's not, and 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 then they can hopefully you know morph their business models and their approaches to make sure that they fit uh, accordingly to that. And my hope is that the regulation you know helps spur further innovation, doesn't shut it down, and and that's my my optimism and belief in the system. All right. And, and uh, you know, uh, Ansar, you've been uh, in the in the enterprise in the fintech space. Uh, how, uh, what advice would you give to investors to to have a flexible mindset? Because uh, the the lot of ch- changes which keep happening in the technology. How do you keep updated with with new things which which happen in market? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, the pace of innovation only continue every year. Feels like it's faster and faster. And in the crypto space, because we we're just talking about it, obviously it's. Uh, feels like every week is a different, a different year uh, in many ways. But, you know, I'd say that, um, you know, it can, the pace of innovation can be dizzying at times, but I do think that uh, the fortunate place that investors sit in is that we get to meet not only amazing founders, but also learn a lot through osmosis with our own portfolio companies, but also we get a chance to meet with a lot of folks who are in and around these industries, you know? And so, um, you know, the goal and the hope of, for an investor is to be able to continuously expose yourself to areas that um, you're spending a lot of time in, but through different lenses. So like, for instance, in the FinTech or crypto lens, not just spending time with entrepreneurs, but spending time with regulators or folks who have a perspective or point of view on that. So you have at least some informed view on where this could or couldn't, couldn't go. Um, meeting with operators, you know, folks who have scaled those companies and existing companies in these spaces. So you have a sense of where their head is at, what's on their general mind and roadmap and where they might be heading. So that can inform your decision-making around investment. So I think it's an ongoing continuous learning that all investors go through. And that's part of the fun part of the job, but also in these days, something that you have to be very mindful of given just the constant pace. I do think we've kind of gone away to some degree from a world of being a pure generalist, because I think that each of these sort of subsectors requires a reasonable amount of attention. It doesn't mean that you can only focus on one subsector, but it, 
I do think you can't focus on all either. So I think some healthy middle ground probably has to be achieved. And I see that happening more and more, both within VC firms broadly, as they think about sector focus, but also at the individual partner level, how do you spend time to make sure you've got the right depth of expertise so that when a company comes through your door, you have the prepared mind and perspective to be able to say, hey, this is a company that we obviously need to be paying attention to. And more importantly, I have something to offer and, and value add to, to the entrepreneur as they think about their strategy and their approach to this, to this area. And again, I quickly want to do the top three. Uh, what's a, a favorite business book? Oh, good question. Uh, uh, my favorite business book is by Phil Knight, which is called Shoe Dog. Uh, and there's two reasons why I love it. One, because I grew up in Beaverton, Oregon, which is the headquarters of Nike. Uh, and so I grew up 10 minutes away from Nike. And so I've always been uh, fascinated by the company. And obviously, they have a huge impact on culture and on sports. And so uh, I've just always enjoyed that company. But I think uh, what was interesting about that book in particular was two things. One, that he really kind of let you into his mind and showed you sort of the both ups and downs of an entrepreneur, almost in a month by month playbook of, of his early days at Nike. Um, and I think that was just from an empathy perspective, it's just a great way to, to understand what it, what it truly means to go through his journey, at least not all journeys are the same, but at least his journey. And then second, it was a time before venture capital. And so the, there's very interesting anecdotes in the book about him going to the bank and trying to get uh, you know, a line of credit as he continues to build his business and the pains that he had around that. And I think it's for somebody who's a, in the venture business, uh, it's a pretty interesting precursor to, I think, what uh, now enables so much innovation, which is, you know, venture capital. And, you know, if you could uh, go back in time when you, uh, when you started your career in venture capital, uh, what, is the, what is the one thing you would have focused on or done anything differently? Um, that's a good question. I would say, um, you know, I think, um, let me think about that. What I've done differently. You know, I think one thing that, um, all new investors, you know, think through is, um, you know, building enough reps to get to a level of your own conviction, right? Cause if you're doing investing for the first time, you know, you know what you know, but you don't know what you don't know from, you know, having enough experience of what's worked and what hasn't worked. And I think that just takes a natural uh, progression of time and, you know, uh, and, and certainly just cycles of meeting with companies and thinking about investments at companies where you start to say, hey, my thesis on this early stage company actually played out to be correct. And that happens enough times, you start to build your own level of conviction, even if that's non-consensus. And I think, having an eye towards that as early as possible, both for myself, but also for any prospective investor, um, you know, I think is an important thing to keep in mind. And I think you can't do it overnight, but also you don't want to wait too long to do that as well. And so thinking through, you know, making sure you gut check yourself and making sure you're building your own level of conviction um, as you think about making your own investments. Um, and the way I think you can start to shortcut that is just to really keep a strong track record of yourself in terms of deals that you passed on or ended up investing in, or even before you formally invested in it, um, would you have invested in that company? And kind of keeping a little bit of that tally in your head gives you an opportunity to build conviction even before you see some of the um, you know returns come out and all that, because that just takes time and, and years to, to play out in full. And so I think that's one way you can start to shortcut your own conviction. And having that conviction, I think, is what makes you distinct and makes you a great investor 
um, in the near term. And so trying to build that as quickly as possible, I think is one thing that um, folks should just keep in mind. And I wish you know, I obviously you know, continue to keep in mind um, as I build my career in venture. And your really favorite uh, business, uh, uh, sorry, uh, online tool, for example, Gmail, uh, Slack, Zoom? Uh, well, I live on Zoom every day, so uh, I don't know if it's my favorite, but it's probably my most often used. Um, let's see, what is uh, something that I use a lot? You know, I used to be, or I still am a pretty frequent uh, user of this tool called Bear, B-E-A-R, which is a notepad tool. And... Actually, Apple Notepad has gotten quite good now, but uh, for a while I was on Evernote and then I finally migrated to Bear and I really enjoyed it because there's a lot of sort of mechanisms there in terms of just how you organize your thoughts and notes. Um, and it's sort of an easy interface to be able to write and, and keep track of things. So it's probably my favorite or beyond Zoom, my most favorite and frequently used uh, tool that I use online. We'll put that in the show notes. Uh, and so what is the best way people can reach out to you and know more about Lightspeed? Yeah, uh, I, you can reach out to me directly with my uh, email. It's my first name at lsvp.com. And um, uh, happy to engage with folks. And, you know, generally we've we've got a lot of content online. We've got content on Twitter. Um, you get to know, like I was mentioning, I think every investor tries to create a little bit of their thoughts online around where they think certain areas are trending or at least on Twitter from a day-to-day -day perspective. And I think that's a great way to not only get to know me, but also the broader firm and other folks at our firm as well. Got it. We'll put that in the show notes. And so thank you so much for taking your time speaking to us. I really enjoyed my conversation with you. Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks for the great questions. And I hope it's helpful to, uh, to you and your audience. Thanks for listening to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we teach you how to start and grow your online business. For more information, visit Rohit's blog at www.lifeselfmastery.com.